I know that is a very different video than you might expect to see on Mother's Day, but uh, we have identified as a church, single moms, as one of the groups in our city, um, one of the main groups that we really feel called as a church to love, uh, to reach out to, and to serve. That's one of the things I love about this church um, is how so many of you are so radically involved ministering uh, to people in some of the most unreached parts of our city. Um, so, but to all of you, um, especially to you mothers, uh, Um, We say Happy Mother's Day, um, including those of you who are uh, in the process of fostering or adoption. uh, We dishonor um, you on this day. I will say, as I think our campus pastors have already said, we realize that on a day like today, um, it is a day of, of sometimes great pain for many of you. Because whenever God gives something as a great blessing, um, it can also become a, a source of a pretty significant pain. So if that's you, whether it's the, the pain of loss or maybe the pain of disappointment um, in some way, uh, just know that we, um, we love you and that we, um, we hurt together with you um, on this day. Uh, but to all of you who are currently serving in that capacity, um, God has given you in this season of your life the responsibility to be a mother. Uh, we want to say we honor you and we love you. In fact, some at church, if we could, let's put our hands together one more time and thank God for them. Welcome, welcome Summit Church at all of our campus locations around the triangle. Um, We are in the midst of a series called The Difficult Sayings of Jesus. Um, Things that Jesus said that don't readily make sense to us, things that may challenge us and shatter um, some of our preconceptions that we have about Jesus. Uh, You see, many people I have found come to Jesus with a very specific role that they want Jesus to play. They usually want him to be some kind of divine snuggie uh, that they can just, you know, get close to and it makes them feel warm. But then Jesus says these things throughout the gospels. We're like, no, 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 don't, don't say that Jesus, please. Uh, But it confronts you with, with, with whether or not you're willing to let Jesus simply be who he is. Listen, if you're going to come to Jesus, you got to have the integrity um, to at least just let Jesus be who he is. Um, we don't get to edit out the parts of him that we don't like. Um, we have to just sit and, and receive him as he is or reject him altogether. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had that famous Bible. I think it's in a museum somewhere where he had actually cut out the parts of Jesus's life and ministry that he didn't like. Um, You may not have actually done that to your Bible, but all of us tend to have kind of a version of Jesus that we gravitate toward that is an edited version. Well, I don't like what he says over here, and I don't like it when he does this right here. Uh, You can't do that. You cannot block out parts of Jesus' presentation of himself. And what these statements do is it puts the real Jesus on display to these difficult statements and really confronts you with who he is to ask you how you really feel about him and whether or not you're willing for him to be who he is. Here's the difficult statement for today. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 10, but invites you to um, take it out and open it up or turn it on to Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be in verse 17 is where this one is found. Luke 10, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. Uh, really quick, you're like, who are the 72? And it's kind of like the second ring of disciples. Uh, you had the 12, and then you had beyond them, we find out, a group, um, a larger group that included the 12, 72. Uh, many scholars point out that the number of families listed when God scattered the earth in Genesis 11, um, all the different cultures, there were 72 different nations and clans mentioned. So in many ways, this is God sending out people to rebring in all those various tribes and cultures. Um, but um, at this point in the Gospels, it's 72 going around Jerusalem or uh, Israel preaching the gospel, saying, they came back very excited, saying, Lord, you're not going to believe this. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
And so he says to them, I saw Satan like fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, why would this one be a difficult statement? Well, first, what does it mean that we have the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions? I mean, is this when our church gets really weird, right? Maybe. (laughs) First, if the ushers would come forward at each of our campuses and pass out the buckets with the snakes in them, we're going to see who has real faith. Uh, No, I'm just kidding, of course. The only time I've ever really handled a snake, I was 12 years old. Uh, My parents had just given me a bow and arrow, and I had spent every day for the last three months practicing it. And I went to a little creek down behind, about a quarter mile uh, to the back of my house, and they're curled up on the... um, on the, uh, the, the bank was some kind of snake. I was probably about 20 yards away. I took that bow and arrow. I pulled it back, um, shot at that, um, <laughs> that snake. Um, through some freak accident, I hit the snake right in the head, right in the back of the neck. Could never do it a second time. Don't think that I'm like Katniss or, you know, some version of that. I just pinned the snake to the ground. Um, I thought that was awesome. So I did what any, you know, 12-year-old boy would do. Uh, I walked over to that snake. I took its head. I took the arrow and ran it all the way down, you know, its stomach and carried it home like a trophy to show my mom. Um, I took it out, um, the arrow out, and it was still alive. Uh, it slithered off and, um, and went back in, into the grass. I have no desire at any point to ever even see a snake again. Um, so that is not what we're a church we're about. Um, even if you know that Jesus didn't really mean that when he said this, and you give us the benefit of the doubt that we're not that weird, you might say, well, uh, is Jesus actually saying that Satan is real? I mean, really? Like a real devil with a, you know, horns and a tail and a pitchfork? Is he actually believed? that. Maybe you've known people that were obsessed with, with the demonic realm. Maybe you had a roommate in college who, you know, um, uh, uh, crammed an all-nighter for their exam, and they, you know, come back, and you're like, how'd you do? And they're like, oh, you know, I did terrible. The demons kept me from remembering stuff. And you're like, bro, maybe it had to do with the fact that you didn't study all semester and try to cram it all in in one night. Maybe it's not the demons. Uh, you're just used to people that, 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 are, that are doing that. Or maybe um, I had a roommate in college um, uh, who, whose mom um, anytime something went wrong with one of our cars, demons were always the first suspect. Uh, you know, the car wouldn't start. And I'd be like, I think it might be the battery, but okay, we'll go with the demon theory. Uh, let's cast the demon out, then we'll try to change the battery. Uh, she explained to me one time um, that uh, a thief had broken into a piece of her property through the back door. She was explaining to me why the back door, before she'd gone on vacation, she had anointed all the other door, uh, doors with oil. Um, in the Holy Spirit, and she'd forgotten the back one. That's why the demon, you know, directed the thief to get in there. Uh, so maybe you've known people like that, and you're like, I'm just not sure that that's really what educated or, or sophisticated people, that's not, I'm not sure how they, th- they even think like that. And you're trying to tell me that Jesus actually believes he's talking to them about demons, real demons, you know, with pitchfork and horns and all that kind of stuff. Well, maybe not with pitchfork and, and horns, but you can see from this verse that Jesus most definitely believed that Satan and the demons were real. In fact, Jesus seems to spend his entire ministry engaging with the devil and demonic forces. I mean, it's nearly every chapter. Satan is mentioned 250 separate times in the New Testament, which means almost once in every single chapter of the Bible, of the New Testament. Here, Jesus is giving them very clear instructions about how they are to engage with the demonic realm. So if you're going to take Jesus and the New Testament seriously, listen, you got to take this seriously. 
Because it's a major theme that runs through Jesus' life. And if you're ignorant of this or you just ignore it, you're missing a big part of what God has for us as disciples of Jesus. Well, who is he and what exactly does he do? This verse gives you a clue as to where he came from. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan was one of the highest archangels that rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven as a result of his rebellion. And when he did, the book of Revelation tells us, he took a third of the angels with him who became what we refer to as the demons. Now, Scripture never gives us a detailed account of that event. You have to kind of piece it together from several different places in the Bible. But Isaiah 14 gives you a glimpse into what happened in that moment. Um, Isaiah 14, this verse is actually, by the way, um, about another rebellious king, a human king. But what Isaiah does is he looks through that human king and he sees kind of the ultimate rebellious king, Satan, behind that king, influencing what he does. And so Isaiah looks through this human king and he starts talking about the king behind him. And he says this, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? which was not the earthly king's name. That's why we know he's talking to the guy behind him. Um, o Lucifer, son of dawn, how are you cut down to the ground? You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. Now, what do you hear repeated in those verses? I will, that's right, I will. It's gonna be five times in that Isaiah 14 passage because that's the heart of the satanic rebellion. I will. I'm going to do what I want to do, not what God wants to do, because I will be my own boss. I will choose my way. I will be the point. I will get the glory. That is the heart of sin. I will instead of God's will, my will be done instead of thy will be done. Well, ever since the fallen angels and Satan were cast down to earth, they've been trying to coerce anything and everything to join in that rebellion of I will. Uh, the theme song in hell is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Um, that is what we are, are, are doing when we choose sin. We as a race have joined Satan in his rebellion. And so now the Bible tells us, listen, he has a certain authority over us. And Jesus said he now dwells on earth as one of the rulers or the ruler of the human race. And he is here to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I told you he was mentioned over 250 times in the New Testament. Let me show you a few things of what he's doing. Uh, by the way, if you're taking notes, don't try to jot all these references down. They're all in the transcript. You can get the transcript off the website. All the references are in there. You'll try to scribble your hand off in there. Everything is in the transcript. Even the dumb jokes I say. We write them down so that I won't say them again. Um, but uh, it's all in there. So don't try to get the references. I just want you to get a sense of where he is and what he's doing so that you can see how many places the New Testament says this is actually him. Jesus in John 8, calls Satan the father of lies. And 1 Timothy 4.1 says that he corrupts faith and concocts false doctrines. 2 Corinthians 11 says that he gives false teachers not only the ability to speak persuasively and winsomely, he gives false teachers the ability to imitate divine signs and wonders. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that he tempts the saints specifically with illicit sex. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us that he turns unresolved anger into bitterness in the hearts of God's people. You ever feel that, that, that kind of thing coming up against somebody else you know, in, in, in the Christian community? You understand that is your enemy at work in your heart trying to turn. That's what 2 Corinthians says. So Paul said, don't let the sun go down in your wrath because you're given opportunity for Satan to actually work on your heart. 
1 Thessalonians 2.18 tells us he puts obstacles in the way of people trying to tell other people about Jesus. You ever been trying to share Christ with somebody and just the most bizarre things start happening to them? Distractions, things that make them doubt. And you're like, why? It's because Satan is putting, when he begins to target people, when they begin to be exposed to the gospel. It's why some of our church planners overseas deal with opposition they like you've never experienced before. Because he is putting obstacles in the way. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. Which means he loves to what? Accuse you and remind you. Which means that voice in the heart pointing at your sin is not always the Holy Spirit. A lot of times it is your enemy trying to remind you of the mistakes you have made, the failure that you have become, so that he can paint for you a very bleak outlook about your future. Romans 16 verse 17 says that he sows discord and division among God's people and he moves in God's people to rebel against their leaders. You ever notice how critical people are of Christian leaders that God has put over them? There's a reason that that is one of the biggest targets for everybody and that is because Satan loves to do that. 1 John 3 10 calls Satan the father of hatred and murder that is at work in the rulers of the world. In fact, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan makes this statement to him that when you listen to it, it's really astounding. Satan says to Jesus, I can give you all authority in, on the earth and the, the glory of the nations because that's been delivered to me and I can give it to whomever I will. That's Satan talking. And here's what's, what's amazing. Jesus concedes the point. He never says, no, 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 that's not true. Think about that. That means that Satan is moving in the highest levels of earthly power, the highest financial, the highest military. He's moving in those, turning them to kill, to steal, and to destroy. First Timothy 3.6, Paul says that he puffs up Christian leaders with pride so that, that they will fall. And then in 2 Timothy 2.24, that he brings to the minds of unbelievers the pride and the faults of Christian leaders so that they will not take the gospel seriously. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that he blinds the mind of unbelievers. And in 1 Thessalonians 3.5, that he attacks faith wherever he finds it. Ephesians says that Satan ensnares unbelievers in their sin so that they become addicted to their sin with this feeling that they'll never be able to get out of them. Throughout the New Testament, we see Satan causing sickness and sometimes insanity. In the Old Testament, we see how Satan directly is involved in Job's misfortunes in his sickness. Many passages in the New Testament relate physical maladies with spiritual causes. Matthew 12, for example, a demon makes a man both blind and mute. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul would call his physical affliction. He had a thorn in the flesh that afflicted him physically, and Paul called it a messenger of Satan to afflict me. So is he real? Is he active? If Jesus knew what he was talking about, the answer has to be yes. By the way, are you skeptical of this? Can you not look at this world and see something more than flesh and blood at work? You look at certain chapters in human history and you say, how could that have happened? How do things like the Rwandan genocide happen? This year, we are recognizing the centennial of the commencement of World War I. Do you ever study anything about that war? You look at it and you say, what was the point of that? Just this needless bloodbath. How do you get there? How do you get to the levels of cruelty you see today in the Sudan or the Taliban? How did slavery happen in our country? How is the abortion epidemic still happening in our country? How does child pornography 
the sex slave trade. How do these things gain traction? And these are not things, by the way, that just take place in remote parts of the world without education. You know that the, 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 the hub of the sex slave trade is Atlanta, Georgia. That's the largest one. The famous historian from Yale, Marlo Unger, said, history is littered with the story of powerful men and women whose infliction of destruction and death could only be described by two words, insane or diabolical. And can't you see that? Can't you see there's something greater at work in the world than just human dysfunction, bad decisions, or poor parenting? Do you know there are three times in the Bible, only three, where someone is said to be directly filled by Satan? And all three times, they are completely sane. They're not rolling their eyes in the back of their head and floating six feet above their head like the exorcist. All three times that Satan fills somebody, they are completely sane, but they are murderous and they are out to destroy Christian faith. To quote Tony Campalo, Satan is the one appearing in movies, telling us that romantic love and sexual pleasure are the keys to fulfillment. He is the one behind an economic system that teaches us that money is the key to success and happiness. He works in and through governments that coddle people into thinking that government help is the answer. He is the one who sits in the psychologist's chair, offering ultimate hope in life apart from God. He is the one standing as a professor in our universities, touting that science and education have all the answers. He is the one teaching from our pulpits that life is about you, that God wants to make you rich, that hell is not for real, and that the standards of the Bible are for a different time and place. So is he real? You better believe it. You say, well, why then is he not more obvious? I read the Gospels, and it seems like demons and Satan are a lot more visible back then than they are today. Listen, this is really important. Satan is not after your recognition. He is after your destruction. And that means he's happy if he can destroy you, even if you never know that it's him doing it. In fact, in many ways, that's advantageous for him. He's, think of him like a hunter. A hunter is not concerned that the prey know that the hunter is there. The hunter is only concerned with destroying the prey. It's, it's like I heard my youth pastor used to explain that Satan works like um, the, the way they, uh, kill, um, they kill a wolf up in the, uh, the northern parts of Canada. Wolves, you know, are, 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 they, they, you know, they want to get rid of them because they kill seals and um, household pets and that kind of thing. So when they want to kill the, the wolf, they take a, a very sharp knife. They will dip it in seal's blood um, because a wolf loves, you know, a seal's blood. Um, they do it enough times so that it freezes around it so that you can no longer see the blade. Um, they bury it up to the handle so that just the blade is sticking out of the ground. The wolf comes along, smells the seal's blood, begins to lick what essentially to him is a blood popsicle stick. Um, as he licks through, he gets down to where the blade is, but by this point, his tongue is numb. So as he licks into this blade, he doesn't feel that this blade is now slicing his tongue into ribbons and that the blood now falling on the ground is no longer the melted seal's blood, it's his blood, and then he wanders off and dies without knowing anything that happened. That is what Satan does in sin. That's why we call him the angel of light. He doesn't come to you saying, I'm Satan, I want to possess you, and I want to make you float over top of your bed. He comes to you as an angel of light saying, Follow this. This is what you want. This is how I am going to destroy you. 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. You keep your eyes open at all times because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. First, notice that Peter calls Satan a lion, which means that he's in the cat family. 
I told you, demons are cat, cats are demons. That's not the main point of this passage, but I think it's an important observation, all right? The main point is that he's a hunter, that he seeks prey. And what happens, Peter says, if you go through life without being even aware? I, I remember, have you ever seen the movie The Ghost in the Darkness, Val Kilmer? It's probably 15, 20 years old now. But basically, it's this, you know, lion that um, attacks this settlement in Africa, and it's, you know, stalks around, and for a while, nobody really believes that it's happening, but people just keep disappearing, and then Val Kilmer goes over there and saves the day. I made the mistake of watching that right before I went on a mission trip to Africa. That was a dumb, a dumb decision, because everywhere I went in Africa, I'm like, oh, I've seen the ghost in the darkness. You know, where's he going to come, and I'm just going to be dragged off into the woods, and they're never going to find me again. Um, that may not have been the wisest choice that I made watching it before I went, but it's probably better to be paranoid about stuff like that than it is to go through time without ever even realizing that there is an enemy that is, that is there to destroy you. What if he was at work in your life right now? What if he was at work in your life right now? What if he was in the temptations? What if he was the one, sir, that was hovering above your computer at night beckoning you to just enjoy yourself for a few minutes before you go to bed? What if he was the one that was providing you with those really easy opportunities for you to get ahead in business by just cheating a little bit? Have you ever noticed that some temptations seem so perfect, so perfectly timed? I remember once being on a mission trip. There was one night that I was by myself. I'd just been through something very emotionally difficult. I was very stressed, strained. I was all by myself. And checking into this hotel, overseas, there was this girl that started to come on to me. And I'm looking there because it's just all too perfectly timed. And it was like in this moment, the Holy Spirit gave me this insight, nothing, you know, weird or kooky, but it was like I, it was like I was able to see through her and see that behind this beautiful face was an enemy that was raging and roaring, wanting to destroy me, wanting to destroy my family, wanting to destroy our church. What if he was the one that was behind those temptations? What if he were the one that were trying to make divorce so appealing and reasonable to you right now? Because there is nothing that destroys family and church and tarnishes the name of Jesus more than an unbiblical divorce. Dads, what if he was after your kids and you weren't even engaged with him or them? He's excited that you're kind of on autopilot with your kids. He's excited that you have them involved in all kinds of sports and, and all kinds of extracurricular. And the, the one thing that you neglect is getting them anchored into the people of God and growing in God. He loves that because you're not even protecting them. You've just let them as open prey. What if he were the one trying to get you into debt? Making it seem like, oh, you just got to have that car because all your friends have got it. You got to have one like them. You got to move into that house that you really can't afford. You got to be, you, you, you got to have this. Just put it on your credit card. What if he were the one that was doing that? Because debt makes you a slave, and he loves slavery. So why didn't he put you into that kind of debt since it's not vilified in our country, and then he can get you to do whatever he wants you to do? Because when you're in debt, your options for serving God become severely limited. For those of you who are investigating Christianity right now, what if he were the one behind some of the doubts that are popping in your mind? What if he was the one that was suggesting to you things that give you reasons to not believe what if all that was happening and you were completely unaware of it? You encouraged yet? <laughs> you encouraged? There's good news. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. I saw Satan fall. And I've given you authority now to tread on serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's an amazing promise. 
I've given you authority to tread on serpent. Could, could you think of doing that physically? Pit of sor- serpents and scorpions, you just go walking across it barefoot? I was out with a bunch of guys this past week fishing on the, on the French Broad River. And they, you know, those, they have these little holes in the side of the river um, or like the, in, in the bank where, you know, like you're, you seen that you were seeing the, you know, they put their hand in there and that we did not do that. <laughs> um, but we were talking about, I who thought of that first? Who thought, I'm just going to reach my hand in there and let a catfish like try to bite my hand and then pull it out and that's how I'm going to catch the fish. I would not do that. I certainly would not look at a pit of snakes and scorpions and just go trotting across a barefoot. Yet Jesus is saying that that's exactly what you're going to do, metaphorically speaking. You're going to look at that and you're going to walk across it knowing that it's not going to be able to actually hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. By the way, listen, that does not mean Satan cannot afflict you. How do I know that? Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh that was a messenger of Satan. Satan was afflicting him, was he not? So it wasn't like just because Paul was an apostle, Satan could not mess with him. Nothing can hurt you means that nothing that Satan does can stop the forward progress of what God is doing in your life. Here's what God did. God took that messenger of Satan, 2 Corinthians 12, and he turned it into an instrument for Paul's good. That's what God does with Satan in your life. He takes the afflictions of Satan and he says, I'm actually going to reverse those and I'm going to use what Satan intends for evil. I'm going to use it for your good. You have been given authority to overrule all that Satan intended for evil in your life and to say, I declare that God is going to use that for good. You say, well, how do we exercise that authority? That's a great question. Before we get to it, let me answer a couple of practical questions that people ask me when I teach on something like this. First one they ask is, I got a situation, say for example, sickness, and I don't know if there's a spiritual reason behind it. So what should I do? You know, we know so much now, even more than they did back in the days the Bible was written. We know the science of medicine, and God gave us that knowledge, and he expects us to use that knowledge to the fullest. And yet, we know that there can be spiritual reasons behind sickness. I gave you references to that effect above. One more, Paul in 1 Corinthians said that there were some who were sick and even died because of their disrespect of the Lord's table and communion. So he's like, well, well how do we, what do we do in that moment? Part of the problem, listen, is that we like to draw neat lines between the natural and the supernatural. But the supernatural, listen, this will blow some of your minds, The supernatural can work in and through the natural. For example, can God send a storm? Yes, we see that happens in the Bible. Does that mean he did not use the normal forces of nature to cause that storm? Not at all. The supernatural can be in the natural. Or here's another one. I teach my kids that they were created by God. Is that legitimate? Psalm 139 says they were created by God, that God created them as a plan for them. Does that take away the fact of the biology of how Veronica and I created them? Not at all. The supernatural works in the natural, and you're not supposed to try to separate those all the time. That means, practically speaking, when you're dealing with a situation and you suspect there may be some supernatural purpose behind it, my counsel to you is that you address both the natural and the supernatural sources as you seek healing. You should exhaust every natural remedy at your disposal and then be sensitive to spiritual reasons that may be behind it as well. Hey, uh, I'll give you an example of this. Did you know that the apostle Paul traveled with a licensed physician? His name was Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. 
Paul traveled with him. In fact, at one point calls him the beloved physician. In fact, one of the things that entertains me as I read Paul's letters is I love it when Paul gives medical advice to people that he's writing to. You ever seen this? It's throughout. We assume that he got that from Dr. Luke. And so Paul, when he would minister to people, he would use both the natural and the supernatural. The point is one does not have to exclude the other. So when someone is sick, call the doctors always. But if you begin to suspect something, something really different is at work, then while you are consulting the doctors, you should call, James chapter 5 says, the elders of the church to pray. Because that is, 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 is also dealing with the spiritual things behind that. Here's another question that I get. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Interestingly, the Bible never uses the term demon-possessed, period. That's actually a, a poor translation of the Greek word diazomai. Right? It's, it's not a good translation. Literally, diazomai means demonized. Can a Christian be afflicted by a demon? Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things we teach here is that if you get drowsy while I'm up here teaching, that's a sign of demon afflicting you, okay? So if the person next to you looks like they're getting a little drowsy, I've told you, reach over, take their you know, forehead in your hand, and as loud as you can, yell, demons out. And I promise you, whether the cause is natural or supernatural, the spirit of slumber will depart from that person, okay? Um, I, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but can a Christian be demon-possessed? No. Any part of you, however, that is not surrendered to Jesus and placed under the protection of his blood can be demonized. Your soul can never completely be taken over since, if you're a Christian, your soul belongs to Jesus. But whatever part of you you have not brought underneath the lordship of Christ can and probably will be demonized. Which leads me to the final question. How are we supposed to engage against the demonic? How are we supposed to engage against the demonic? Well, this passage does not give you a lot of detailed instruction. But notice what Jesus says in verse 20. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's a side point that I'm actually going to go to somewhere else in the Bible to really develop. Jesus consistently directs people away from preoccupation with the demonic, consistently. In fact, he never, not one time, ever tells us to go out demon hunting or to approach the world like an exorcist. There's really only one passage in which the Bible outlines for us what a strategy for spiritual warfare should look like, and that strategy is found in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's where he lists out the weapons of our warfare. What's interesting, listen, and might be disappointing for some of you, is that none of the weapons that he gives us are really that weird. The helmet of salvation. That's, why, that's one of the, fir the first one he mentions, which basically means let your thinking be saturated by the gospel. Take the shield of faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's promises. <laughs> Put on the belt of truth, which is good news because you never wanted to go into battle with your pants down, all right? But what is the belt of truth? It is believing what God's word says. Have your feet covered with a readiness to declare the gospel, with a readiness to preach. Take in your hands the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Know how to quote scripture. Pray at all times in the spirit. Can I summarize all those things for you? Really, all the different weapons are actually different ways of saying the exact same thing. 
I, yes, I grew up in Sunday school. We had the flannel graph. I know how to put on the different pieces. I, I get that there's a bunch of different pieces mentioned, but Paul is actually just rephrasing the same concept over and over again, and that is be saturated by the gospel. Put faith in the gospel. Cover yourself with the gospel. When every part of you is covered by the gospel, Satan cannot touch you. You see, when I was on the mission field, when I served overseas, there were many who believed in what they called territorial spirits which is basically like some, you know, hierarchy of demons that control various places. And then if you're going to, you know, do effective warfare here, you got to find him and bind him. So you got to figure out what his name is or, you know, its name is, and you got to cast him out in Jesus' name. Paul never, never instructs us to do that. He doesn't say, hey, Summit, you got to figure out who the Prince of Durham is, right? Now, some of you UNC fans are like, I know exactly who that is. It's Mike Krzyzewski. That's why they call him the devil. I mean, we know that. Yeah, okay, you're not supposed to do that. In fact, listen to this. And again, this might disappoint some of you. Paul gives us three model prayers in the book of Ephesians where he talks about spiritual warfare. Three model prayers. In none of them is he binding or casting out any demons. I I know a woman who was praying with another Christian that she worked with about something she was worried about. This woman said, I know what we got to do. So she went and got this piece of construction paper and she cut out an image of a snake. Then she gets this little decorative hatchet and she said, here, cut the head off the snake. So they're, you know, trying to cut the head off the snake, and this the lady was like, I'm not really sure if I, you're not, that's foolishness. First Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul is addressing the division, listen to this, when Paul is addressing the, divi- addressing the division in the Corinthian church, do you remember when I went through that list, one of the things that Satan does is he causes division in God's people? And First Corinthians, the Corinthians are like, they're like the worst church division ever. So if there were ever a place that Satan was at work, it was in the church in Corinth, right? I mean, because they're like the Jerry Springer show of churches. If you ever read that? When Paul is counseling them, Paul never tells them to rebuke the spirit of division. He doesn't. He tells them to be united in their minds around the gospel and to be charitable to each other in response to the gospel. He tells them to do exactly what he told them to do in Ephesians 6, cover yourself with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 5, when he talks about the problem of immorality in the church, (laughs) you got some guy sleeping with his mom which is bad. And some scholars say, well, no, it was a stepmom. That doesn't matter. If you call her mom, take her to the prom, that's just bad news, okay? (laughs) When Paul addresses that situation, he doesn't tell them to rebuke the spirit of incest. He urges the Corinthians simply to believe the gospel, exercise church discipline, and encourage the guy to repent because of what Jesus has done. The point, again, listen, get grounded in Jesus and Satan will not be able to touch you. You focus on the fullness with Christ, not on the demonic. Luke chapter 11, here's where Jesus made this really clear. Luke chapter 11, he tells a story about a guy. um, He uses a metaphor. A guy has a house and a demon lives in it with him, which is bad news. Evidently, the demon's pretty messy and stinky because the guy's house is kind of, you know, messy and smelly. So he asks the demon to leave, and the demon does. So the guy cleans up his house. He's super excited because now he's got a spick and span house. The demon, meanwhile, goes out and gets six of his friends, comes back, says, hey, clean house, something else for us to destroy. And they all move in. And so Jesus says the last state of the man is worse than the first. All right. Then Jesus goes on in that chapter to say, you've got to have a stronger man that possesses the house before the demons will not come back and fill it again. And so his point is, listen to this, if you want to keep the devil out, you need a stronger resident who when the demon comes back, he can't take over from the stronger man. The irony is, if you want to fight the demonic in your life, 
Don't focus on the demonic at all. Just let Jesus be large in your life. C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, that, you know, he's the pastor emeritus of the Summit Church. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. You're like, pastor, how do you keep Satan out of your church? I just preach Jesus. That's what I'm trying to do. Just preach Jesus. Why? Because Satan hates that. I'm preaching Jesus, and it's beating the heck out of the devil. I could probably get away with, say, beating the hell out of the devil. Could I not right there? I think I could. I preach Jesus... And it does whatever you want to say. It makes say he leaves. He cannot possess where Jesus is large. We want the stronger man. We want the Holy Spirit to possess every part of you. We want the gospel to saturate all of you, and then the demonic cannot touch you. You see, when Jesus died, he destroyed any power that Satan has over you. Any power. I read this story in Tony Evans' book about. Um, it's a true story of a, a, a family in the pioneer days that lived out you know, in the plains around Oklahoma, and there was a, a fire that began to sweep the plain. The father saw it coming, so he put his family in their covered wagon, and they took off away from the fire. But the father looks back and sees that the fire is, is coming at a faster rate than he can move. And so he did a very strange thing, his family thought. He stopped the wagon. He went uh, you know, about 100 yards away, and he started his own fire. And he started a, a fire and he let it burn outward to where, and then he put it out so it was about 20 yards, you know, in, um, in, in diameter. And then he had his whole family stand in that place where the wheat had already been burned or the field had already been burned. And as that raging fire went by, it just went all the way around them. Why? Because the place that they were standing had already been burned, therefore it could not be burned with them in it. What Jesus did is Jesus took all the threats of the enemy, he took all the accusations, he took all the power of death and sin, and he was burned by it in your place so that in him, Satan's wrath cannot ever touch you, right? See, Jesus did not merely die for you, he died instead of you. And because Jesus was taken to the cross in part by Satan, he can never do that to me because he's already been burned. The wrath has already been given. So in him, there's not a thing, not a hand that he can lay on me. In fact, here's how you say this. Christians fight from victory, not for victory. Christians fight from victory, not for victory. Here's why I say that. I hear a lot of Christians say, I'm just fighting for victory over Satan. You don't need victory over Satan. Jesus had victory over Satan. You just stand in him. You rest in the finished work of Christ in that spot where it's already been burned. And there's not a thing that Satan can do for you. The answer to overcoming the demonic is not to obsess about the demonic. The answer is to get filled completely by Jesus. So is Satan filling your mind with discouraging thoughts? Is he telling you you're a failure? You're never going to be used by God? There's nothing but failure in your past? There'll be nothing but failure in your future? Then you need to counter that with the truth of the gospel. It's not that you need to figure out the spirit that's speaking into your head. You just need to ignore it, and you need to get a louder voice ringing in your ears. And that is what Jesus has declared over you, that I have chosen you. I have called you for my purposes, to give you a future and a hope. I have ransomed you. I have made you who was not my people, my people. There is nothing but goodness and mercy in your future. And you need to drown out the voice of Satan with the louder voice of the gospel. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Satan loves to whisper in your head. Listen, I know he does mine all the time. Remember, he's called the accuser of the brethren. 
You need to drown out the voice of the accuser with the louder voice of the gospel. Believe the gospel from head to toe, and the accuser cannot touch any of it. You suspect Satan is afflicting you? You suspect he's afflicting your body? You declare that these things cannot and will not hurt you, that you're going to walk right over top of those scorpions, that God will overturn all of Satan's evil plans for good. God may heal your body. He may sanctify you through your your sickness. I don't know what he does, but I can assure you that whatever Satan has intended for evil will not hurt you. You think Satan is messing with your marriage? You think he's messing with your spouse? You think he's messing with your kids? Get the presence of the stronger man all over your marriage. And Satan cannot touch it. Whatever belongs to Jesus, Satan cannot touch. On the other hand, listen, believer, whatever has not been submitted to the Lordship of Christ and brought into that circle of the blood of Christ is wide open for satanic attack. And that one area that you have not brought into that circle is the area through which Satan will destroy you. My youth pastor, who I think liked to preach a lot about Satan, but I'm glad he did, um, used to describe it like this. He'd say, he'd say, if someone gave you a house for a ridiculously low price, the one condition was you could have every part of that house except for one nail sticking out over the bedroom door. Which should you take that deal? And at first you're like, well, yeah, I get everything except for the nail. But he would say, no, you never should because if they own that nail, maybe they could hang the carcass of a dead animal on it. And then you got this house, but you got a rotting animal hanging in it because of that little part that they own. Whatever part of you is not brought underneath the lordship of Christ, that is the part into which Satan will infuse death and sin and destruction that will destroy the whole house. Some of you have a habit, not a bunch of habits, a habit, and that is what Satan is using to destroy you. Some of you have never brought Jesus into your dating life. You've never brought him into your finances. There are some of you, young professionals, that Jesus has never been Lord over this part of your life, and Satan is laughing because he is going to use this to ruin the rest of your life. Some of you, it's just your finances. You're like, I'm just not gonna let Jesus touch my money. I'm not gonna let him touch my 401k. I'm not gonna let him touch anything about that. He can have everything else, but not that. And Satan says, that's fantastic. Because that one area, that one nail, I'm gonna destroy the whole house with. Christian, for you, let me close with the words of C.S. Lewis. Humanity falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. Either they take him altogether too seriously, as I've tried to explain to you today, or they don't take him seriously enough. Don't develop a bunch of rituals, but let this reality drive you deeper into Jesus. My dad heard this kind of teaching when I was just a kid, when I was three, four years old, and it awakened awakened my dad, he says, to get off the sidelines and to get his family grounded in the gospel, to begin to be a part of the church, not just a participant, but to be involved ministering, to be involved praying, to get involved in discipleship ministries. And I am so glad that he did because God used that involvement to bring my family underneath the umbrella of the church, which delivered us from Satan. Dad, you need to protect your family. And the way that you gotta do that is by getting serious. You see, there are many of you that are listening. You're just, again, you're here, but you're a spectator. And Jesus is not saturating your family. Could I just invite you this weekend to begin to change that? To get involved. To to go to starting point. To to, to get involved in a small group. To get get active in ministry. The first step for you, join the church and go to starting. That's why we call it starting point. It's where you start. Start with starting point. 
You're like, well, that's a very odd thing to do with spiritual warfare. I, I realize that, but that's just part of what it means to get saturated in, in Jesus. Summit, listen, what this does tell us, and I don't have time to preach for a long time on this at all, but that means we, we got to get a lot more serious about prayer. Because Jesus said, these things come not out by prayer and fasting. It's by prayer that we saturate our ministries in the gospel, and there we begin to have power over the enemy. If you're not a Christian, could I ask you, what do you believe about this? Might you at least consider this weekend that you're under the attack of the enemy? Again, he doesn't want your recognition. He's the angel of light. He wants to deceive you. He wants your destruction. But he's there like a roaring lion seeking to destroy you. And maybe that'll make you run into Jesus. Maybe you're, you're seeing, yes, I see. I can see it in my own life. The gospel, see, is that Jesus took all the threats of the enemy and was burned in your place. And Jesus says, whosoever will may come. You can be delivered from the destruction brought on by your own sin. You can be delivered by, from the power that the enemy has over you. Death, sin, Satan, destruction, hell, all of it was poured into Jesus at the cross. Run to him. And maybe this, at last, will wake you up. Why don't you bow your heads with me, if you would, at all of our campuses. Could I leave you for just a moment? Our worship teams are going to make their way up. Allow the Holy Spirit to identify that one nail, that one place. Answer this question. Where is it that you see your enemy most at work? Could you identify it? And if you're a believer, say, Lord Jesus, I want to bring this area right now into submission to the Lordship of Christ and the covering of his blood. Show me what I'm to do now in this area. And then be willing to obey the Holy Spirit with whatever he tells you. If you're not a believer, and again, if this has woken you up, maybe right now you can say, Jesus, if you're real, I'm learning this. I want to know more. I'm ready to walk. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sin. He's the Lord. If you will surrender to him and receive that as your own, he will save you right now. Call out on him at this moment. And say, Jesus, deliver me. Deliver me from the condemnation I've brought on myself. Deliver me from these things. Save me. You linger these moments with the Holy Spirit, and then our worship teams will come to lead us.